1952, and plans are underway to build Interstate 75 through Kentucky. For most Kentuckians, this news barely registers, but for one 62-year-old man, it could spell disaster. Over the course of his life, he's worked as a blacksmith, a farmhand, a soldier, an insurance salesman, and a janitor. He's never held on to a job for long or saved any money. But now he thinks he's finally found something to sustain him until he can retire. And it may be in jeopardy. It's a busy gas station and restaurant off U.S. Route 25. He especially likes the restaurant part. He serves country ham, hot biscuits, and star of the menu, perfectly seasoned fried chicken. He came up with the recipe himself. But just as he feared, when the interstate is finished, the state redirects Route 25 away from his joint to meet up with the new freeway. Business collapses. He's two years away from retirement and just three years short of the average life expectancy for an American man at the time. And he's broke. He could give up and try to get by on Social Security, or he could borrow money and live in his car while he drives across the country trying to turn his fried chicken recipe into a franchise. He goes with option two. He lugs a pressure cooker from restaurant to restaurant, meeting with the owners, frying his specially seasoned chicken in eight minutes flat. When the owners fall in love with his recipe, he negotiates franchise rights. Day after day, restaurant after restaurant, the network grows. 12 years later, at age 74, he sells his company for $2 million. That's $32 million in today's money. By now, he's not just a millionaire, he's a household name. Kentucky Fried Chicken, when you can visit the Colonel White Even after Harlan Sanders sells his business, he doesn't stop working. He keeps going into his 80s, his 90s. I just say the morale of my life, don't quit at age 65. Maybe your boat hasn't come in yet. Mine hasn't. The Colonel's story is the American dream with a twist. He didn't just prove how much a hardworking person can accomplish as a self-made entrepreneur. He proved how much a hardworking person can accomplish in the final decades of his life. Some people see old age as a time to rest, to ease into oblivion. But Harlan Sanders' late success reminds us that others use it as a launching pad. So what determines which group you will belong to? And here's the $32 million question. Do you get a choice? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week successful aging. Nothing gets in the way of successful aging like a global pandemic, especially one that exacts such a tragic toll on older people. We actually put this episode together before COVID-19 came along and upended everything. But I'm convinced that the ideas we'll talk about today are more relevant than they've ever been. 
as we all find ourselves asking big questions about what it means and what it takes to live a good, healthy, and fulfilling life all the way through to the end. The story you heard at the top of the show is from a New York Times bestseller called Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. The neuroscientist in question is Daniel Levitin, who also happens to be a cognitive psychologist, music producer, and musician. He's already written two other bestsellers, This Is Your Brain on Music and The Organized Mind, both of them phenomenal books. We can't all be as productive in old age as Colonel Sanders, but Levitin argues that there is, in fact, a recipe for aging well. It's not as simple as the Colonel's 11 herbs and spices, but it's not a secret either. To write successful aging, Levitin reviewed more than 4,000 scientific papers on growing old and came away with a list of the key ingredients. Some of those ingredients are genetic, some are cultural, but more than you might think are under our control, which means we can start to change how we age right now. The first step is changing the stories we tell ourselves about growing old. Daniel Levitin, it is great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. It's great to be here, Rufus. I have been successful at aging in the sense that I've done it reliably without fail. I'm 52 years old, and I'll be very happy to be 53 next year if all goes according to plan. But I think you have a more ambitious notion of what it means to age successfully and why that's important for all of us. Well, I do. And I'm interested not necessarily in longevity, which a lot of Silicon Valley 30-somethings are interested in. I'm interested in thinking of your lifespan as divided into two parts. You've got your health span and your disease span. And for most of us, you know, we have periods of illness, but we're generally healthy for most of our lives. And then somewhere near the end, we're not healthy. And that's when the disease span kicks in. And then, you know, for most of us, we die at the end of some kind of illness. I mean, unless you get hit by a bus or something, right? Mm -hmm. I make the distinction between health span and disease span because I think given the choice, most of us would rather lengthen our health span, not our lifespan, if lengthening the lifespan merely means tacking on a bunch of diseased years, right? I was just at a conference with Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico, and we were hearing about some ventures that are trying to extend life to 200. And, you know, I stood up and I said, well, that's all fine and good, but what if your last 110 years you're slumped over in a chair drooling on yourself and you don't know where you are? Pushing out to 200 is probably not the best objective. Pushing out a healthy mental life as long as possible seems like a more prudent objective to me. You write in the early pages of the book that we can choose to, and I quote, to see our final decades as a period of blossoming, a resurgence of life that embraces the gifts that only time can bring. I think that's wonderful. And uh, in fact, I would have proposed it as a subtitle for the book. Not that I don't like your subtitle, which is great, but it's beautifully optimistic. And it's also well substantiated in the book. It strikes me you're setting out to kind of reframe how we think about the last few decades of our lives. Is that, would that be accurate? Absolutely. And the reason is that we've come to, there is pervasive ageism in our society, and we've come to see old people as doddering and useless and people that need to get out of our way. At least that's how we often look at them when we're younger. And as I'm aging and spending more and more time with people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, 
who are really making great contributions. And some of them are actually at the top of their game. Others are holding strong. I've come to see that old age has been unfairly stigmatized. It's true we slow down. Some brain things don't work as well as they used to. But from a neuroscientific standpoint, a number of compensatory mechanisms kick in. And given healthy lifestyle practices and some of the other things that I uncovered in my research, you know, a lot of us can be living meaningful, engaged, and really happy lives into our 80s and 90s and beyond. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the stigma of aging. You know, the word elderly to me sounds sort of like, you know, fragile people who we have to protect from falling apart. Whereas when we think about the phrase, the elders, right, the elders we associate with the wise people in charge, you know, and in many cultures throughout the millennia of human existence, the elders have been the wise people in charge. It seems like it's somewhat of a PR problem in terms of the way I like your use of the word in the book, you often use the word oldsters which I didn't even know was a word. I looked it up, and in fact, I thought maybe you had coined it. But I like oldsters because it has a hipstery kind of spunk to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, hipsters, youngsters, oldsters, right. right. I mean, it's it's spunky, it's spry. Uh, and boy, didn't you nail it, the difference between elder and elderly, right? It's just two letters change the complete perception of the word. Yeah, I mean, the way these words are freighted with sort of associations is so interesting. And you wonder, to what extent do you think this is culturally specific or historically specific in that in that we live in an age right now where technology is changing so quickly and only the young people understand it? That's sort of a broad perception. To what extent do you think this is a kind of recent erosion in our kind of appreciation of the value and wisdom of oldsters, we'll, we'll call them? Well, the foundation of the book is what I call the developmental science approach, the triad of three things that affect who we are, who we become, and how we think about ourselves and others. And these are genes, culture, and opportunity. And so in any discussion about what we do and what we think and what we feel, those three things are are influences. So you ask about culture and elders or elderly. In Japan, for example, older adults are venerated. In some countries, they're required to retire at age 50. In Germany, there's mandatory retirement at age 65, and they just recently induced legislation to extend that to 67. Here in the United States, there is no mandatory retirement, and ageism suits have been successfully won. It does have to do with culture. It also has to do with genes and opportunity in that we now have the appreciation of genetic factors that can influence lifespan, and we have the opportunity to live longer. Medical science in the last 150 years has created more people over the age 100, both in raw numbers and as a percentage of the population than ever in history. It was somewhat probable if you were born in 1900, you'd die before age five. I mean, it was like a 10 to 20% chance that would happen back then. We've eradicated the kind of childhood illnesses that would kill people. And we've done pretty good with other things that will kill you, like infections. We, you know, we discovered penicillin and other antibiotics. You know, a bad cut 100 years ago, you were a goner. Now we can live long enough to get diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's, which we didn't get before. And if you can get over those, you can live quite a long time. 
One of the treats in this book are some of these extraordinary inspirational role models for oldsters. And maybe we should start with the story of Harlan Sanders, which is pretty incredible. Here's a man who was born poor in Indiana in 1890. His father died when he was five. Who knows what effect that had on him? He was a very poor student. He dropped out of school in the middle of seventh grade, never went back. Within five years, he had been fired from four jobs, and he drifted most of his life as an adult. He had one unskilled job after another. He had a number of disappointments, both personal and even job-wise. He didn't have a career. It seems as though he was aimless and unfocused. So now think about this. 62 years old, never really held a steady job, never saved any money. He's broke again. Oh, by the way, he's living out of his car. How many of us would give up at that point? But what does he do? He takes an old family recipe, imagines that not only will a restaurant succeed with this recipe, but that a bunch of them will. And now that company that he conceived of at what might have been the end of his life is a $23 billion business. Extraordinary. Well, I'll tell you, the story of your mother, Daniel, was particularly inspiring for me. She was a novelist and she wrote dozens and dozens of novels. My mother is very inspiring, as was her mother. When she was 75, in spite of having one novel that sold a million copies, Journey to America, it was called, and it's still in print and it's been used in elementary schools and junior high schools all over the world as a novel about leaving one country and setting up life in another. Even with all of that, nobody would take her work. Hmm. I think they figured she was over the hill. But she still wanted to write. And she still wanted to create. So at 75, she decided to write plays. That meant she had to learn a whole new vocabulary. She had to learn how to use a new word processing template that would put words on a page like a play script is supposed to look. She's 85 now. And so in the last 10 years, she's written four plays. Two of them were staged in well-known theaters in Los Angeles. In addition, she had to act as the director and the producer and audition actors and oversee rehearsals. And she was out till 10 o'clock at night sometimes. She had to learn about lighting and ticket sales, but it was wonderful. She told me there's nothing as rapturous as sitting there on opening night and seeing your play come alive before your eyes, hearing the laughter of the audience and seeing their tears and hearing their applause. She just loved it. And now she's still working on plays, but about a year ago she took up painting, which is something she had always done in the background. In the last year, she's painted 30 or 40 canvases. Wow. She's shown them at major galleries. Yeah. Extraordinary. And she's selling them. I cut my first album six months ago of my own songwriting, and I put one of her paintings as the cover art. (laughs) So we have these fears about aging, and it strikes me that maybe our fears inform to some degree this tendency to be ageist that you mentioned and sort of dismissive of older people. But most of these fears you point out are rooted in myths, which you dismantle in the book one by one. So let's start with the myth that old people are miserable. There's an incredible study that asked people at what age they were happiest, and the most common answer was 82. I love this study. And yeah, I mean, certainly there are some old people who are miserable. Just between you and me, I've worked with some of them. But On average, over 60 different countries surveyed, the peak age of happiness across a lifespan is 82. And there are a number of factors contributing to that. Again, the triad of genes, culture, and opportunity. 
Genetic changes in the protein encoding affect brain structures and circuitry such that, in general, old people tend to have what's called a positivity bias. They focus more on the positive in any current event or in any memory. Not all old people are like this, but oldsters tend to to have a rosier outlook, and they remember and process more of the positive information. I was talking to George Schultz about this, former Secretary of Treasury and Secretary of State, who's now 99, and he's an economist by training, and he says the standard of living that the average citizen of a Western country has far exceeds what royalty had just 200 years ago. Interesting. And so why not be happy? So myth number two is that older people have more pain. This was entirely new to me, that chronic pain peaks in our 50s and 60s and then falls off again. Yeah, we're not exactly sure why this happens. It could be that old people just give up and stop complaining. And it also could be that they suffer some neural degeneration such that the nerves no longer transmit pain as well, and so they're not feeling it as much, and that could be a good thing. Uh, And it could be that some of the aches and pains just disappear. We don't really know. It's myth number three, though, that might be the most surprising. What if memory doesn't erode with age? What if forgetfulness is just a story we tell ourselves? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. One of the key principles of successful aging, according to our guest, Daniel Levitin, is curiosity. And a proven way to both stoke and satisfy your curiosity is to join the Next Big Idea Club, the subscription community that powers this podcast. Get the most provocative new nonfiction books along with videos, audio, and reading guides in which the authors distill the key insights. All curated for you by top writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Susan Cain and designed to keep you sharp no matter how old you are. You can get a free copy of Dan Levitin's Successful Aging if you join us now at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and enter the promo code AGING. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and promo code A-G-I-N-G. Imagine that you're a 78-year-old retiree who's volunteered for an experiment testing memory loss. It's at a university across town, and you've never been there. You're nervous before you even leave your house. Thanks to your phone's GPS, though, you get to the university with time to spare. But once you've parked, you can't find the building. Here it is, but where's the elevator? You walk with a cane. You can't do stairs. Maybe it's around the corner? Nope, not there. Ah, there it is. You check your phone. The experiment was supposed to start at 2 p.m. It's now 2.05. You hate being late. Room 23, 22, where's 21? Finally, you find the lab. A 20-year-old research assistant greets you. 
As you pass more bright-eyed 20-somethings on the way to the test, you feel out of place and nervous and old. The test begins. The researcher rattles off a long list of digits. You're supposed to repeat them back to him, but you struggle to focus. 43, 21, no, 22. Congratulations. You've just helped prove that memory decline is an incontrovertible fact of old age. Or here's an alternate interpretation. You've just helped prove that memory tests are uniquely stressful for older adults. That's the conclusion of neuroscientist Sonia Lupien. Her work focuses on the way stress, especially the stress of being in an unfamiliar environment, impairs our memory. Most memory experiments pit a control group of college students against older adults who need to navigate a university setting for the first time in years, maybe in decades. Their cortisol levels spike before the test even starts. So Lupien decided to design a fairer experiment. She scheduled the test for the early morning, when most older adults are at their best. She invited older participants to the lab for a visit beforehand so they didn't have to worry about getting lost on the day of the test. And she sent out a 72-year-old research assistant to greet them. Once Lupien had leveled the playing field, she found that older adults performed just as well as college students. Her conclusion? Past experiments had inadvertently been testing for high cortisol levels, not memory loss. Which raises the question, is memory loss an inevitable part of growing older, or is it just another myth? You know, we can look at it in two different ways. There's substantial evidence on both sides. Surely there are a number of old people with memory impairments. I don't mean to minimize that. But part of it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves, Rufus. So I have one of the best jobs in the world being a college professor. I get to see a new crop of young people every year. And I can tell you from 25 years of teaching experience, when 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds come to school, they make all kinds of memory errors. They show up in the wrong classroom. Uh, they show up on a day of an exam and forget that there was an exam. They raise their hand, and in the three seconds it takes me to call on them, they forgot what they wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I love this observation, yeah. Now, when a 20-year-old makes a memory error like that, they don't say, oh, geez, this must be Alzheimer's, which is what a 70-year-old would right, say. Right, sure. They say, oh, man, I, I must have had too much to drink last night, or I'm not getting enough sleep, or I got, I, my course load is too high this semester. It's really the stories we tell ourselves. You know, a 70-year-old might walk to a closet and say, why did I come here? I got news for you. 20-year-olds are doing that all the time. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. It, it does strike me that this culturally ingrained defeatism around forgetfulness of older people may be part of the problem, which I think is perhaps part of what you're saying. Because I've noticed in my own life that if I'm apprehensive about remembering something, I'm more likely to forget it. I'm so glad you brought this up, and I love the way you framed it in terms of anxiety and the stress of trying to recollect something. My colleague Sonia Lupien, formerly from McGill University and now at the University of Montreal, is one of the world experts on stress. And she looked over the memory literature and concluded quite convincingly, I think, that the very way we test oldsters for their memory is uniquely stressful to them and not to the college-age students or mid-30s people that we test as a control group, mm -hmm. right? We put them in a situation that is guaranteed to cause them stress, and in fact, she measured cortisol levels in them and they were through the roof. You write in the early pages of the book, I've come to see old age as a unique period of growth 
a life stage with its own distinct character rather than a period of decline. Is there a particular significance to thinking about old age as a developmental stage? Well, yeah, there is for three reasons. One is stigmatization, one is medical, and the other is for maximizing quality of life. So it's very clear to most of us that infancy is a unique developmental stage. Infants have some abilities and some inabilities. Then there's toddlerhood, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, middle age, the expanding waistline of middle age, and the uh, seven-year itch, and the middle age crisis, and all of this stuff. We don't tend to think of old age as a distinct developmental stage, but it surely is. There are metabolic changes that show up in blood work and in muscle tone, and there are neurological changes that show up in the changing of neurochemistry. And as we said, there are some declines, but a number of compensatory mechanisms like wisdom and pattern matching. The ability to solve and understand social problems actually increases with old age. Tolerance, compassion both increase, as does joyousness, and joyousness is infectious. So medically, socially, and neurally, it really is a distinct stage. And my aim with this book, other than encouraging people to not dread aging, but to look forward to it, to put in place certain systems that will help maximize the opportunity of a long and alert health span with great mental energy and engagement and social and spiritual engagement. My aim is to change a society-wide conversation, to do more like what the Japanese do, which is to venerate old people, to realize they do have some value. Well, I think it's a fantastic and extremely important project, particularly as our society gets older. It's clearly not all upside, though. It strikes me as it's useful for us to embrace the bad news. There are clearly some capabilities that do erode with age. And, and some of it was news to me reading the book, specifically like the five senses, right? Vision, hearing, smell, touch, taste, that all of those to varying degrees decline. Well, of course, there are decrements in abilities. But again, we have that in every developmental stage. I'm not trying to paint a shiny coat on something that's, that's rough, but it seems like that's the stuff that gets all the attention. Yeah. I'm just trying to rebalance things a bit. And it's fascinating how we develop new skills to get around these limitations without even realizing it often. We do, yes. You may not be able to put thoughts together as quickly or retrieve words as quickly, but compensatory mechanisms kick in, such as pattern recognition, wisdom. And what is wisdom if not being able to recognize patterns in things that have come before? and see them in new things where people haven't yet gleaned the pattern. Old people are great at that. If you need to get an x-ray, you're far better off with a 70-year-old radiologist than a 30-year-old because the 70-year-old has seen so many more x-rays and the patterns of whether they actually lead to something bad or not. So abstract thinking is something that strengthens with age, is that correct? Our abstract thinking does get better. Our ability to use analogies, which is sort of a, I mean, it's certainly a hallmark of human cognition, is analogical reasoning. Mm -hmm. What situation is like the one I'm in now, and how have I solved it before? That peaks, that increases with old age, partly because you've had more experiences, and you're able to tie them together, and partly just a shifting in the way our brains work. They become more abstract, more metaphorical, more analogical. There was a game that uh, Diane Ackerman, the writer, describes playing with her husband that gets to this kind of abstract thinking. It was a, an exercise in a form of abstract thinking that we call divergent thinking. 
And, you know, in one iteration of the game, it's you've got a pencil. Name as many uses as you can for a pencil in one minute. And, you know, if you're game, why don't you try? Well, I remember this from the book. It's kind of an extraordinary list, right? It could be it could be the mast of a miniature ship. It could be a dipping stick in oil. It could uh, uh, you could use it to scratch an itch on your back, and so on. You could use it as a doorstop in a dollhouse. It could be a splint for a puppy with a broken paw. You could use it to um, stir your metamucil. So, I mean, that's a form of abstract thinking. You're having to think of the pencil in its abstract relation with other objects and purposes. You're having to think of it functionally. Interesting. You've said that we become more optimistic with age, and I think also more pro-social. We do. We become more optimistic, more pro-social, happier. We tend to have fewer ups and downs. We tend to be more grateful and more comfortable with ourselves. I think every teenager and even preteen goes through a period, and I'm sorry that your two kids are probably going through this, where they just feel like they don't fit in and they're, they're different than everybody else. And it's funny because everybody feels it. Even the class president or the person voted as the most popular, they feel like they don't fit in and they feel like they're frauds. There's this deep insecurity that we kind of lose as we get older. And that is one of the greatest rewards of getting older. You reach your age, 52, my age, 62, and you realize, yeah, I guess I must be okay. I've gotten this far. I have friends. I have family. People like spending time with me. I like spending time with them. I, I must be all right. Maybe I'm not the, the misfit that I thought I was. Yes. Other people become less and less intimidating, and maybe the, the finiteness of life becomes a little more so. <laughs> but, but the world becomes friendlier. Yeah. We move a bit towards an internal focus of it's what I think about me that matters, not what others think about me. Yeah. Not all of us do, and we do it in varying degrees, but that's the idea. Well, supporting this idea that emotional well-being improves over time or in later years, there's this great example of Leonard Cohen's experience, right? That he had chronic depression for decades, and it just lifted in his 70s. Yeah, and he doesn't know why. I mean, he was meditating. He was part of a Buddhist monastery. It might have been that. Of course, during that period, he found out that his manager had absconded with most of his money, and yet his depression went away. And... My explanation is that his neurochemistry shifted, and, and that happens, and that's a good thing. It doesn't work in the same direction for everybody. There is such a thing as old-age depression. But yeah, as a trend, depression abates as we get older. So aging acts like a natural antidepressant. The amygdala deactivates, which makes us less likely to be fearful and have negative thoughts. No mantras or self-help books required. But other aspects of successful aging, like staying healthy, don't just happen on their own. They require work. Daniel Levitin spent the last few years sifting through thousands of studies, trying to separate the BS from the real science. In the end, he settled on five essential practices and a handy acronym to help us remember. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
Do you have questions for Daniel Levitin about the best strategies for staying fit, sharp, and happy at any age? Join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com, where Dan Levitin and dozens of other authors are responding to member questions and hosting live chats about their big ideas. That's nextbigideaclub.com. So let's dig into the nuts and bolts of what we need to do to be winning bicycle races, writing novels, and starting global fast food empires in our 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, <laughs> what, what are the concrete things we can do to live richer, healthier, longer lives? I hope this doesn't sound too cute, but I put together five principles that start with the letters C, O, A, C, and H. And so I call it the coach principle. One thing I know is that uh, things are easier to remember if you have a mnemonic. The five principles of coach spell out the difference between merely being alive for your golden years and actually living them. The first C stands for curiosity. Curious people tend to take more joy in the little things in life. You walk outside, you see a new bird you've never seen before. You delight in that. What is that? Where did it come from? Why is it here now? A long health span, a long period of life when you're mentally engaged and feeling happy and valued is created and spurred by curiosity. The O in COACH stands for openness to new experiences. It's that O that led Daniel's mother to start writing plays in her 70s. You know, by the time you're in your 60s and 70s, maybe you know what restaurant you like and you know what food you like and you know who you want to spend time with. And so you want to maximize your happiness by not exploring. But I say fight that urge. Stay open to new experiences and new people as a way of keeping your mind young and exercising neural circuits that might otherwise atrophy. The A in the coach principle is associations, the very associations I talked about in openness. Associate with new people as often as you can, with younger people when you can, with older people, and maintain your associations. Try to grow your social circle. Isolation is very serious. It's one of the leading causes of indirectly of death and of disease. It seems like central to this problem of isolation or loneliness is this question of how we as a society are structured and how we integrate people of different ages into our society. I think you're absolutely right. So, you know, we've got schools. When you're a kid, you're surrounded by a lot, unless you're in a rural area, you're surrounded by a lot of people your own age. And, you know, we've got universities where you start to mix with people of different ages. And we've got the workplace where there could be a 40 or 50 or 60 year age range in the workplace. And then we retire if we retire. And then what do we have? We're not integrated very fully into society or into social circles unless we're a member of a church or congregation or a, a civic group or a book club or something. And even then, they, they tend to be smaller groups. So the biggest single piece of advice that I've got is don't retire. I mean, even if you hate your job, find something else you can do. Volunteer at a hospital. Volunteer in a soup kitchen. Do something. Stay engaged with people. And give yourself a place to go where you're doing something that's meaningful and valuable and you have people to interact with. And if, if you can't, if you're not mobile, try to figure out a way to get people to come to you. Interesting. It's about those other things we talked about. Stretching your mind, interacting with new people, having a conversation with somebody 
especially in person, is about the most complex activity we know of for the human brain. More complex than brain surgery, more complex than performing a Rachmaninoff piano concerto or winning two gold medals at the senior games like Julia Hawkins just did at age 103. Just having a conversation is very complicated for the brain, and so social isolation doesn't lead to that. The fourth letter in COACH stands for conscientiousness. Well, the biggest single factor is something that is partly determined by genetics, but it doesn't mean you can't change it, and that's conscientiousness. I mean, just as an example, I've been struck during the hour that we've spent together so far at your conscientiousness in reading my book and grappling with the concepts. And, you know, you or your listeners might just say, well, that's regular, that's his job. They might think I'm just trying to butter you up. But I've done 1,750 interviews, and I can't think of two or three times apart from this where the person actually was this conscientious, that actually read the book and took notes. I'm very happy that my mother's listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mom, you raised a good kid. But the way it plays out in aging is that conscientiousness is the single most important factor that determines health span and lifespan and happiness. And there are reasons for this. Conscientious people do what they say they're going to do. They follow instructions. They are dependable, reliable. And all of that, in terms of aging, plays out this way. A conscientious person is likely to call the doctor when they get sick. They're likely to have a doctor to call. You know, they've established a relationship with a doctor. And then when the doctor tells them what to do, they actually do it. They take the pills they were told to take. They take them on time. The doctor tells them to give up, you know, red meat, and they give it up. The doctor tells them to exercise and lose weight. They do that. Conscientious people put money away for retirement. They're depended on by others, which means they feel valued as members of their families and their friends' circles and their society or even globally. So that's huge. And although we're born with varying degrees of it, the good news is through therapy, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, you can learn tools and strategies for becoming more conscientious, for putting that in practice. And that's interesting because conscientiousness then is is almost like a meta-characteristic that helps encourage all these individual behaviors, right? Diet, exercise, sleep, community are all critical drivers of healthy and longer lifespans, health spans, you would say. Yeah. Which brings us to the final letter in COACH, the H, which stands for healthy practices. Now, unpacking the H, the health side, a little bit, just for the very practical kind of things that we can do in our lives, right? I think you say that exercise, that, that when you break out exercise, diet, and other health-related factors, that exercise is particularly powerful. Yes, but I, I want to be careful to define exercise because I think actually that's not exactly it. I call the chapter uh, movement because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exercise, as my friend and colleague Scott Grafton says, is the imprisoned corollary of movement. Interesting. It turns out that what really makes a difference is moving and moving around in unusual or unfamiliar or natural environments as much as possible. Alan Castell, in his book about successful aging, makes the same point that moving and walking, which forces you to keep a sense of balance and to look where you're going, very different than a treadmill. So 
yes, it's nice to get your heart rate up. It's good for the heart. Being on a treadmill or a Stairmaster or an elliptical, those are all good things for the heart. And they're somewhat good for the brain because they oxygenate the blood and and the brain needs oxygenated blood. But ultimately, if you're talking about memory and brain health, what's more important than exercise is movement in varied environments, preferably outdoors, and interacting with the environment. I put a picture in the book of this trail I walked on in uh, the Quebec countryside. The reason I took the picture is that, you know, it's the kind of trail that most of us have hiked on all our lives. It's not paved. It's not entirely wilderness. Some Somebody went in a national or provincial park and, and made a trail. But, you know, it's a tangle of roots and leaves and twigs and things falling and rocks. And to walk on it, you really have to pay attention. And with each step, you've got to readjust your balance and you have to apply a different part of your foot and pressure in a different part and a different amount of pressure. Our brains evolved from more primitive organisms, certainly from any ambulatory organism, to navigate. We move and we had to make these kinds of micro adjustments, sometimes hundreds of them, hundreds of muscular and sensory micro adjustments per minute in order to navigate. And if you stop doing that and you just stick on a treadmill or you you sit in a couch and, and do virtual sports through uh, Oculus, you're not really engaging the brain in the way it evolved to be used. Mm-hmm. And so those areas will atrophy. Interesting. Another one of the myths that I've uncovered in doing the research for the book and that I explain is that, you know, you always say, oh, well, old people don't need as much sleep. That is not true. Oldsters do need as much sleep. It's just that they don't get it. And they don't get it because a number of uh, signaling mechanisms start to deteriorate and break down. Plus, you know, they have to, many have to get up and pee a lot in the middle of the night. So they end up with a shorter amount of sleep and with fractured sleep. And many oldsters get only five hours. And we know that a good eight hours is necessary for most people to process, form, and amalgamate memories. And so many, many cases of what looks like cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's is simply sleep deprivation. But the biggest thing about sleep hygiene is old advice that anybody who's looked into it has heard a hundred times before, go to bed at the same time every day, especially if you're over 70. You might have gotten away with it earlier, but by the time you're 70, your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is just a fancy term for your biological clock, is starting to run a little haywire. And so you got to go to bed at the same time every night and get up at the same time every morning, no matter what. Don't stay up past midnight on New Year's or you're going to pay the price for weeks. Wow. Leave the party early, whatever it is, and get your eight hours. Good advice. So, Daniel, you're now 61, teetering on the brink of 62. What do you want the next two, three, four decades of your life to look like? Well, you know, (laughs) the— The funny thing about the course of my life is that I always was a planner. I always had, I wrote down things that I wanted to do and accomplish and achieve, and not a single one of them happened. Interesting. Instead, a bunch of really amazing, other interesting things happened. And so perhaps if I can flatter myself that I have some wisdom, I don't try to plan anymore because I've learned that um, I'm just no good at it. 
But I love what I'm doing now, and I've always loved everything that I've done. So I'm hoping I'll, I'll be doing what I'm doing now or other wonderful things I didn't anticipate. I don't know how long I'm going to get. I don't really fixate on, like some of the millennials are saying, oh, I want to live to be a thousand, and I want to up, upload my brain to the Borg. I'm not really fixated on that. I'm fixated on trying to do the best work I can do now to find interesting things and interesting people to talk to, and making music. What would you say to a 52-year-old who may or may not be named Rufus, who has no musical talent or knowledge whatsoever about the prospect of learning to play the piano now? Is it too late, Daniel, or do you think we could teach this old dog new tricks? I really don't think it's too late. I had a 52-year-old professor who started playing the piano at that age, and he's 75 now. He's been playing for almost... 25 years. And he just plays 20 minutes a day, but he took lessons. He was conscientious. And boy, he's pretty good. Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. That was incredibly interesting. And I'm now going to go on a trail run, learn to play the piano, and tell everyone about your wonderful book, Successful Aging. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure and a privilege. If you have thoughts about successful aging or any of the books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. You can sign up for the club and get a free copy of Successful Aging with the promo code AGING. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code A-G-I-N-G. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Daniel Levitin. His book, Successful Aging, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Natalie Shisha, sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.